HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, surreyfarms.com. Welcome to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. So, uh, you know what the word breakfast means, right? Of course you do. You're my listeners. You know. You're smart. Yes? Well, it means to break the fast. That's what breakfast means. The overnight fast that you would have endured since your last meal. Now, what a century or two ago uh, was probably eaten around four or five o'clock in the afternoon, that last meal, and was probably the last food you would have had until you woke up again at dawn or even earlier than dawn. And since you woke up at dawn or earlier, you were probably asleep by seven or eight o'clock since there was no internet back then or texting or even TV. I know. It's so hard to imagine, isn't it? All you could do after dinner was sit around and talk to your family or read a book, if you had any books and if you knew how to read, of course. So, and since your day probably consisted of at least 12 hours of hard manual labor, if you ate dinner at 5 p.m. and then got up again at 5 a.m., that's 12 hours of fasting and a lot of hours of work. And those combine to create a gaping hole in your stomach that a huge, hearty breakfast would need to fill. And filling that hole was always crucial because you were probably about to do some seriously grueling manual labor. Um, Whether you were in an agricultural life or an industrial one. Now, I'm talking about life in America before things like labor laws, before automation, before assembly lines. Like when people worked on their farms or on other people's farms or in coal mines or garment factories or as slaves. You know, before modern electric machinery and cheap illegal immigrant labor took over. I mean, actually, at the time, most of us were cheap illegal 
immigrant labor. That's what this country was founded on. All of us, cheap immigrant illegals. <laughs> and so people ate really big, hearty breakfasts. Big, heavy, hearty, solid breakfasts, you know, based on grains and meat, things like grits and oatmeal and potatoes and bread and biscuits and eggs and ham and bacon and cornbread. You know, whatever grew in your region and was available at that time of year, was quick to make, was filling and had sticking power. That's what you ate for breakfast. Eggs often because they cook really fast and they give you some well-needed protein that you would need to get through the day. And of course, big piles of carbs to keep your blood sugar up and going because you were going to need that. And cured meats because they could be stored all year round and would guarantee you some more protein if, you know, the chickens stopped laying, which back then they did. They weren't on a year-round laying cycle like now. And that's what people ate here in the U.S. because that's what we grew and that's what we knew. And it's not like we had that much other choice, actually. So that was our food. That's what we ate. It worked. We had, you know, like I said, no other choice. The average man in the 19th century on a farm in the U.S. ate between four and 6,000 calories a day. Now, the Amish, who still basically live in the 19th century and don't, haven't really modernized, at least those of them who still farm and don't work like in gift shops or running, you know, tourist wagon rides, they still maintain that level of caloric intake and they're not fat. They actually have very low obesity rates because everything they do is manual, you know, seeing as they shun electricity and mechanization and, you know, presumably social media, stuff like that. And because everything they do is manual, they burn up all those calories. It's how we used to be in the old days. And it stayed like that for most rural Americans until the Industrial Revolution. Remember the Industrial Revolution? We all learned about it. You know, Eli Whitney, the cotton gin, all that stuff. That brought mechanization to farming and to industry. And it brought people into the cities and away from the farms. People started moving away from the farm. And then, of course, we had two world wars. And in between that, we had a depression. And after all that came the post-war foodiness explosion. And then here we are, a hundred years later, about, sitting at our desks, sitting in our cars, using remote controls, not even needing a finger to dial a rotary phone anymore, or an arm to crank down a window in a car. When I was a kid, we had to actually crank the window down with our arm. We expend so few calories a day now because everything's done automatically for us. We don't even have to remember anyone's birthday anymore because Facebook tells us. That old sort of farm labor required a lot of calories. Sitting at a desk following Justin Bieber's tweets, deep thoughts on life, doesn't require as many calories. The average desk chair inhabiting American today, in order to not be fat, needs to keep their calories under 2,000 a day. Under 2,000, and that's even, you know, even fewer for women, less than that for women. For me, if I did no exercise and I just sat all day, I could only eat 1,200 calories a day. Yep, that's not a lot of food. You know, because sitting perfectly still and not moving anything except your fingertips and your eyes for 10 hours a day doesn't really burn many calories, and that's what a lot of us do. That's all we do is we move our eyes and our fingertips, sometimes our jaws, maybe too often our jaws. So look how far industrialization has taken us, this miracle. No more grueling labor, no more plowing fields on foot behind an ox 
horse or a horse, harvesting wheat by hand, building things, mining stuff, making stuff with tools. We are so lucky now to have it so easy. We don't even need to get up out of our lazy boy recliners to shop anymore. No more going to the store. Just click, click, click. And here comes UPS. This might actually explain why so many New Yorkers are now overweight. I mean, New York was always the capital of skinniness. We were always thinner than everybody in the country. Not me, but everybody else. Where it was impossible to be overweight because of all the walking and all the stairs and the non-car driving we do and the general extreme vanity and competition for attention on the streets that New Yorkers enjoy. But we seem to be turning into potatoes like the rest of the country, too. So why, in our modern times, do we still tend to eat like we're Amish farmers in the 1860s? Or more precisely, why do we eat the foodiness simulacra of those foods? Well, yet again, like so many things that point to the decline of our food, it was during the Industrial Revolution. I have to say it like that. The Industrial Revolution, that it started happening. People stopped physically working and they started physically expanding. That's what happened. And that all coincided with the Victorian era where there was this desire for physical and moral purity. That was kind of the rage was you had to purge yourself and purify yourself during the Victorian era. You had to be clean and pure. And I really think that they, that, that convergence of events may be the moment when foodiness, the little baby, was born. When the machine age met the Victorian era's need to control the messy, unpure human body. And in that last quarter of the 19th century, it was also right around that time that the art of marketing was invented. Marketing. I'm a marketing major. I want to go work in marketing. Since the industrialization sorry, of our food meant that companies could now manufacture, package, and ship the same brands all over the country instead of people eating only regionally available foods and brands or local food. It was like this perfect storm of machines, morality, paranoia, and marketing genius. And that all came together to bring us breakfast cereals which I think are the first foodiness products. Now, by the way, people have been eating grain-based porridges since the dawn of agriculture. We have evidence, of, we have proof of that. Oat or barley porridges are some of the oldest known prepared foods to man. And the Northern Europeans, who ultimately emigrated first to the New World, adapted those breakfast customs from home, and they included New World grains like cornmeal, and grits into their breakfast foods. So cereals, in their truest form, cereal grains, and porridges are old, old, old foods. Those are cereals, as in cereal grains, like I said, not like in a box. Those are very, some of the oldest foods that we eat. But breakfast cereals, to make a distinction, are processed products made from those cereal grains. But they're processed and they're packaged in a different place from where they're grown. And with many other added ingredients put in, namely sugar, and they are removed from their source completely. Now, the first breakfast cereals actually didn't have that much sugar in them. They were mostly just various whole cereal grains rolled out in flakes. 
But in the 1920s, companies began marketing them directly to children. And the added sugar and the switch to refined flours was thought to be a positive way to get kids to eat breakfast. And actually, at the time, they thought that eating fiber and whole grains was unhealthy and damaging to your digestive system. <laughs> yep. And by the 1950s, they started adding, adding in all the coloring and sugars and chemicals. And it pushed some breakfast cereals actually to the point where they were more than 50% sugar by weight. Now, the first cereals, the earliest breakfast cereals, were marketed to people who felt the need to purge themselves. Those Victorians. In the Victorian fashion, purging yourself of unhealthy toxins in the bodies. Now, the Victorians, as I said before, were obsessed with purity and cleanliness, and the thought of having to poop really freaked them out. They hated the idea that they actually pooped. And so they tried to purify themselves and purify their poop at the same time. This actually sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like people who do cleanses to me. Nothing changes. Nothing ever changes, does it? Humans, we're just as stupid as ever, aren't we? So anyway, there was this vegetarian movement in the late 19th century, sort of as a you know, a corollary to this. And one of the proponents of this movement was a guy named John Harvey Kellogg of Battle Creek, Michigan. Sound familiar? Now, he ran a sanitarium. Sanitarium or a sanatorium? Sanitarium. I always get those mixed up. Where upper class Victorians with nothing else to do could come and stay and eat big bowls of very bland, fiber-rich cereals and then take massive dumps and also be given massive enemas. They could also practice their deep breathing and they could take ice baths and have all sorts of odd treatments to purge themselves of all all their physical and spiritual toxins. This sounds familiar too, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like Hollywood. And Kellogg also believed that carnal urges were unhealthy. Carnal urges, you know, like sex. And that eating bland food would curb those animal urges. He had actually learned this earlier in the century from the teachings of Sylvester Graham, who invented the graham cracker as an antidote to sexual urges in kids and teens. Did you know that? That graham crackers were first invented as a way to curb carnal sexual urges in people. They had a lot less sugar in them, too, back then, by the way. But that's another show. We'll talk about that some other time. And so Kellogg marketed his cereals to that crowd. And then when people made the switch from those rural agrarian lives to the more urban ones of the 20th century, proto-foodiness products like breakfast cereals really took off. Because now that mom was working in the factory and not on the farm and dad was on the assembly line and not out in the barn, who had time to cook the grits and the eggs and the biscuits and the ham? Well, wait a second. On the farm... They were up at dawn, and they had to grow their own food, and they were working 12 hours a day. Now, they were up probably more like six or seven. They bought their food. Where did all their time go? This was before social media. Maybe it was commuting. Maybe they spent a lot of time commuting. Anyway, if you want to actually read a really good story about this era, um, T.C. Boyle, T. Craggs and Boyle's book, The Road to Wellville, which was also made into a terrible movie, but the book is great. It's a sort of fictionalized version of the actual story of John Harvey Kellogg, and it's great. It's really funny, really good. Anyway, of course, during the first half of the 20th century, like I said, we had two world wars and a depression. So foods like eggs and meat and bacon actually became scarce butter because they were rationed 
during the wars. And also, you know, people were poor. It was a depression. But foods like grains were really cheap and getting much cheaper because of the rapid industrialization of farming. And the chemical fertilizers and pesticides that came out of war weapons research. And our farming became more centralized and much more mechanized. And soon, grain was so cheap that the government was subsidizing the farmers who grew it. And we had a huge surplus. So what do you do with all that surplus? Well, you use it to feed animals. And eggs and meat got cheap and plentiful again after the wars and after the Depression because people were able to afford it because it was so cheap to raise them now. And people started eating those big farmhouse-style breakfasts again. They came back in a fashion. Although now everybody was moving to the suburbs, and this time they were eating industrially raised meats and eggs and grains and driving to their new giant supermarkets in their new suburbs and eating out of places like IHOP and Denny's, and we got fat and fatter and fattest. But anyway... Back to the present. So what happened? They asked. Why was everyone getting fat? Why is everyone getting fat and fatter? Well, why is this same breakfast, or we looked at it as the same, I'm eating eggs and bacon and ham, and this is the same thing that Grandpa ate 30 years ago during the Depression, and he wasn't fat. Well, that move to the suburbs, of course, meant that Mom wasn't walking around the neighborhood doing her weekly shopping anymore from small markets and small merchants and buying fresh food daily instead of her once a week mega market shopping trip and we had huge fridges and freezers now in our suburban houses and huge markets which meant that we could store up all that packaged and frozen and pre-prepared instant food and instant foodiness and then store it away for eternity the europeans never got the big fridges like us and they never stopped the daily shopping for food and maybe that's why they're not as fat as us but they're actually catching up pretty quickly and then mom in the 60s and 70s and 80s started going back to work and when mom went back to work of course she killed the american family you know it's her fault that bitch moms just ruined this country in their quest for things like an identity or meaning in her life or paycheck and since moms were working and destroying the american family guess who stepped in again to help us out yeah foodiness now i will never forget sleeping over at my friend julie's house in the 70s she was my buddy fourth fifth grade having grown up in a relatively foodiness free zone of my own sleeping over at her house and in the morning being served a packet of carnation instant breakfast. Do you remember that stuff? It's basically a packet of powdered milk with a lot of sugar added and some cocoa and some synthetic vitamins mixed in. You mix it up with water, I guess, or maybe you mix it up with milk. I don't remember. And it had everything you needed to fuel your inactivity, packed, foodiness-filled day. Now, I was both horrified and fascinated carnation instant breakfast knowing knowing deep down that it was so so wrong but wanting so badly for it to be so right and wishing that i had parents like julie's parents who cared so little in all the right ways now carnation instant breakfast should go into the foodiness hall of fame where there are awards given out for outstanding audacity and daring in the world of food simulacra, and where the statuette 
is of two golden testicles because they have a seriously huge pair for putting powdered milk and chemicals in a packet and having the balls to call it breakfast. Do you remember those old cereal ads from the 70s? I remember this for Cocoa Puffs where they would say, I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It's part of your complete breakfast along with juice, toast, milk, and munchy, crunchy, chocolatey Cocoa Puffs. Remember that? So the Cocoa Puffs themselves weren't actually the food in the meal. It was the juice, the toast, and the milk. The Cocoa Puffs were more like a condiment because they had filled the cereal so much out with sugar and air and coloring that in order to meet any sort of actual USDA standards for food, they had to recommend that the cereal be eaten with food. Now, albeit they were showing white toast and frozen orange juice and industrial milk, but that still is food compared to the huge helping of sugar that was in the cereal box. But, of course, all this, in the opinion of that era, was better than the old-fashioned eggs and bacon and grits and all that, which by the 70s had been totally demonized for its fat content and banished in favor of this carb mania-style oversized bagels, blueberry cake, I mean, not cake, I mean muffins. Oh, yeah, they're muffins. Breakfast toaster pastries and all kinds of foodiness craptastic products meant to replace the dreaded fat and (gasps) cholesterol of eggs. And meat. So we pumped up on the sugar and the white flour and the refined grains, and it got us to my second golden testicle winner of the day, the 21st century of Carnation Instant Breakfast, the Nutrigrain Milk and Cereal Bar. And now they make a yogurt and cereal bar, which contains no actual milk and no actual yogurt. And the cereal is primarily white refined flours, and it's all bound together in a sticky mess of high fructose corn syrup and other sugary stickiness. Yes, folks, no longer do you need the messy inconvenience of an old-fashioned spoon or bowl if you can manage the exertion and dexterity of tearing off a wrapper. You can dig right into a complete breakfast in a bar. Plus, it's soft enough that even those with malnutrition-dissolving gums can enjoy it. Nutrigrain milk and cereal bars are the Facebook of food. Now, where Facebook is not about actual relationships with people, but rather friendship porn that gives you the feeling of having relationships without the messy actual people, those bars aren't about actual food. Simulated friendships and simulated food, can we even tell the difference anymore between either of them? It's about disconnection versus connection. If you're disconnected from your food and you can't tell the fake from the real, you're disconnected from the larger world and can't tell the fake from the world there either. You can't recognize it because you can't see yourself in it. You're living in a virtual world, eating virtual food with no context and no reality. Just try smelling a breakfast bar just once and tell me if you think it smells like food. It doesn't smell like food because it isn't food. And now that eggs and meat have actually made a comeback, you don't even need to cook them yourselves anymore because you can buy them frozen, pre-made in a microwavable bowl. Eggs and sausage, potatoes, all right there in the box. Or microwavable pancakes, pre-made. Seriously. And I'm not even going to get into fast foodiness breakfast, although in a way I think that's more acceptable. At least you're not pretending to cook it yourself. It's more honest in a kind of fucked up way we're gonna take a quick break when we come back more on foodiness breakfasts good day sunshine good day 
need to laugh And when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about I feel good in a special way I'm in love and it's a sunny day This is Sam Edwards from Virginia with SurreyFarms.com, proud sponsors of the Heritage Radio Network. We take a walk, the sun is shining down, burns my feet as they touch the ground. Welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. I thought I was getting a little dark there, so I thought I'd lighten it up with some Beatles. How can you ever feel bad about anything when you listen to a song like that? So last summer I had an experience that allowed me to peer into the deep existential heart of our communal disconnection from reality and our environment as seen through breakfast foodiness, specifically Frosted Flakes. So I took my niece, Sophie, out to Arizona last summer to go to the Grand Canyon. And we visited a friend of ours who is very close with people who live on the Hopi Nation Reservation. And they graciously invited us to come and visit them, which most outsiders don't get to come onto the land. And so we went with our friend Patty to visit her friends. And we went into her friend's houses, house, house, and... I have traveled all over the world and I have spent a lot of time in the third world and I have never been in a house that was this poor in any semi-developed nation. This was a house on the reservation. I mean, I guess I'm being a little unfair. It was a house. It was perfectly fine. But these, they were really poor. It was very sad. And this was the land where their people had been living for 10,000 years or so. They used to farm it and grow corn and beans and squash and live perfectly sustainably and well. But then they were all moved onto the reservation. Of course, we all know the whole story. And the land dried up because a lot of the water was diverted and they can't farm now. And now they live on this land and they survive on commodity agriculture, basically. And so we walked into the house and on top of the fridge were about six gigantic Costco industrial sized boxes of cereal things like frosted flakes and captain crunch and giant two liter bottles of soda and i know that within the population the native american population there's a big problem with diabetes and a lot of the people i saw were overweight just like the rest of the american population overweight diabetic and i just found that to be kind of a shocking realization that, And then also we were invited to lunch, too, later in the day. And the lunch, also extremely generous to be invited in, was made of, it consisted mostly of white car. It was like potatoes and spaghetti and KFC. But it was those giant boxes of cereal that really killed me. I mean, I can't blame people for eating it. These people live hundreds of miles from any real good shopping, any good supermarkets. They use food stamps to get what they need and what they can to feed their families. Everybody's struggling. But it really killed me that it was all box cereal and soda. And, you know, standing there in the lowest rung of the cultural food chain with people who only a few hundred years ago were epically connected to nature and land and 
their food and viewing it all as one single organism and who now in pretty much the same physical spot are as as disconnected as their ancestors were connected. And this, of course, is the result we know of Europeans imposing their view of nature as the other, as something sinful that needed to be tamed and destroyed, much like the Victorians in their quest for physical purity. So once where there was buffalo and beans and squash and peyote, there's now Coke and Frosted Flakes and malt liquor. The scene on the reservation was it was almost Walt Whitman-esque in its poignancy, on, only it was anti-sublime. It was like staring into the deep heart of how integral foodiness is to disconnecting us from the incredible reality around us, impoverishing us from anything real. And before somebody gets upset and writes me any sort of letter at the mere suggestion that people on the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder are ignorant of what they're eating and where it comes from and what it does, the fact is that what I saw on the reservation is where we all face being consumed and disconnected by foodiness just on different levels, whether it's a Hopi Indian in Arizona eating Frosted Flakes or a corporate mother in Greenwich, Connecticut feeding off of breakfast bars. It's the same thing. Foodiness robs us from our connection to ourselves and reality. And it all starts with breakfast. Breakfast is the one meal of the day that I think foodiness has completely and successfully hijacked, although it hasn't hijacked brunch yet. Whereas you can ask someone to identify actual foods eaten at other meals. If you ask someone to, if you ask someone like what a typical breakfast food was, they'd probably say cereal. And what exactly is that, you might ask? And they probably couldn't tell you. That is down the rabbit hole. And that is total foodiness hijacking. If I were to establish official foodiness food groups, cereal, would be the first one because the concept of cereal as a food on its own has become so ingrained into our psyche that cereal is perceived of as a food like an orange or steak or broccoli. If Raisin Bran and Whole Grain Cheerios are harvested out of some great cereal bowl in the Midwest, like they're a crop. Now on that note, I will be doing a show in the future on foodiness food groups. Still figuring that one out. Stay tuned. And so we've all been told our whole lives to eat breakfast, most important meal of the day, fuel the engine. If you eat breakfast, you'll eat less during the day and you won't be as fat. And yeah, I can say that I agree that that is probably true for most people. But if your breakfast is made of food, that is. See, when they say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, they don't specify that the meal should be made up of food. So foodiness steps into that gap and gives us that impression that we've had breakfast only without having to cope with scrambling an egg or peeling an orange, and with all the added fiber you need for the day. So yeah, you should get your fuel for the day from breakfast, but only if it's the right fuel. And who knows what that is anymore? If you eat a bowl of typical cereal, which is really just a bunch of refined grains and refined sugars, at 7 a.m., by 10 a.m., you're going to be starving and your blood sugar is going to crash. And so you'll reach for something else. Some coffee, maybe a donut, a snack, maybe more sugar. You'll start the whole cycle all over again. And as I point out in every episode, the solution to this foodiness conundrum is simple. Eat real food for breakfast. But you say, I don't have time for that. I'm busy. So busy. Busyness is my job. I have a million emails and texts and tweets and friends to update. Plus, I have to watch the Today Show and the doctors. Who has time for breakfast? Well, 
Let's get real about it. You don't have to get up at 5 a.m. and start churning your own butter and milking a cow and cooking biscuits from scratch in order to eat real food for breakfast. Even though your great-grandmother was doing it and raising five kids and working on the farm or in the factory, and she still did it, but I won't argue the point. Let me just give you some solutions. How about eating a banana? How about eating a hard-boiled egg? If you can take the wrapper off a cereal bar, you can peel a banana or take the shell off of an egg. It's the same process. Using your fingers, remove the outer covering from the edible object. The only difference is that the wrapping isn't made in China and doesn't depict pictures of wheat or claim to provide anything. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. And if you don't have time to boil an egg, they actually sell hard-boiled eggs now, so you have no excuses. And if you're eating pre-cooked, pre-scrambled, microwavable eggs, let me tell you that I've run a test on this and it takes less time to actually cook one than to microwave the frozen ones. I tried it. I did a test And if you want to be a little more advanced, make yourself a bowl of real oatmeal, which would be, you know, rolled oats or steel cut oats, not sweetened instant oatmeal, which is pre-digested for you by pre-rolling and pre-cooking and full of sugar. You may as well eat a donut. And if you're not totally paralyzed with fear of carbs, get some 100% whole grain or whole wheat toast. You can toast it while you're tweeting. You can tweet about toasting. Imagine how fascinated all your Twitter followers would be by that. And cereal, of course, is going to be better than a milk and cereal bar made with fake milk, made from corn syrup solids and white coloring powder and oils. But you should really seek out a cereal that's almost all grain and almost no sugar. Or, you know what you can do? You can just eat food, like any kind of food. It doesn't have to be breakfast food. Why do we think we have to eat certain foods at certain times of the day? My niece, Sophie... Her entire 12 years has been eating basically whatever food she wants for breakfast. My sister used to email me every day and tell me what Sophie ate for breakfast because it was things like leftover Indian chickpeas and rice or rolled up cold roast beef and goat cheese or black beans and broccoli. She never had the sweetened kid foodiness breakfast food foisted on her. So she never associated it with the meal. As far as she's concerned, food's food. She likes what she ate for dinner. She'll eat it again for breakfast. I personally don't understand why we've never embraced soup for breakfast. In Asia, people eat soup for breakfast. In Vietnam, when I worked there, we used to all sit down and eat big bowls of pho for breakfast. The point is that you're always going to be much better off eating leftover pizza than a Pop-Tart. Or you could eat some cheese, a piece of cheese, or some cold chicken, or leftover lasagna. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it's food. And I know you're busy, but you know what? If you could put down the device for two minutes, you could eat something real. You may have some withdrawals from eating real food instead of foodiness, but you could tweet about that. That's okay, too. And like with all reconnecting, reconnecting with your food is work, but it's worth it. If you get off your device and you eat an orange... You may have time to contemplate the fact that the person you just accepted as a friend actually slept with your boyfriend five years ago and they're not really your friend or the person you just linked in with owes you 500 bucks or that you really don't care about the pictures of that baby that your ex-best friend from fourth grade just posted. Just stop and eat the orange and it'll produce all sorts of revelations for you. 
But if you still say, no, I absolutely don't have time to eat real food for breakfast, ask yourself this. Do you have the time now to eat the real food? Or will you have to take the time later on to test your blood sugar sugar, and inject yourself with insulin and still then have to eat breakfast once you're diabetic? Same for your kids. Maybe if your kids ate less sweetened foodiness for breakfast and more real food, maybe they'd need fewer ADD meds or Ritalin or trips to the therapist. And maybe that diagnosis of ADD is really just malnutrition. It's possible for kids to be fat and malnourished at the same time. And if you get more fuel from real food in the morning, maybe you'll need less caffeine or Prozac or Adderall. And you could start taking drugs for fun again, like God meant it to be. The point is that the road to the real and to the fake starts with breakfast. It's the entry point to the real world and real life. It's the way out of the foodiness rabbit hole. It's why we start our day with it. It makes the rest of the day bearable, tolerable, maybe even pleasurable. And if you've done bad things to yourself the night before, it makes a great opportunity to purify yourself. So pile up the fiber and eat some fruit and eat some real oats. And in the spirit of Sylvester Graham, just let it all out. And don't forget, if you don't want to eat shit, make sure you keep listening to Let's Get Real. We're out of time. Thanks to my co-producer, Chris Nutter, and to Joe in the control room. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.